Hey everyone, before we jump into this interview with Jay Luzzi, I want to share some exciting news. We've just reached 1,000 subscribers here on the hot seat, which may not seem like much to you, but to us here at the Hammer Factor, it's an exciting milestone. If you like what we're doing here, providing access and sharing the genius of these professionals, please head on over to iTunes and give us a quick review or a rating. Every little bit helps. Thanks again for listening. Now let's get into it. You ready to roll? Let's do it. Sure. All right. Welcome to the Hammer Factor, where we help successful professionals share their genius with the world. On this episode, we have a lobbying genius, or I'm going to call him that. He may not like that term. But we have Jay Luzzi, the immediate past president of the Southern Appalachian Highlands Conservancy. Welcome to the show, Jay. Thanks for having me. I'm excited about the conversation. Yeah, we got a we got a good list of show notes here we're going to go over, but before we get into that, what is something that most people probably don't know about you? Well, let's see. I uh, not long ago had a college friend come visit and his wife walked into my house and said, "Oh my gosh, you have a dishwasher." And um, I think there are a lot of people who have read my book, um, Stand Up That Mountain, that assume I don't have electricity or dishwasher or refrigeration. <laughs> and um, I realized that's a part of my book. I could have um, done a better job of accurately portraying the fact that I do have a dishwasher. Um, so, <laughs> we'll, we'll get into the book um, here in a little bit, but describe to our audience what you do for a living? Well, I like to say I have the best job in the world. I, um, I've been working with Southern Appalachian Highlands Conservancy since about 2004. And before I worked for that organization, I was a volunteer leading hikes for that organization and introducing people to the work that they do. Basically, um, Southern Appalachian Highlands Conservancy is a land trust. And the land trust movement in the United States started. Uh oh, I lost you. Roots driven response to people looking at negative changes in their landscape. So, any kid that looked out the window of the family station wagon and saw um, timber falling and saw roads carving up hillsides in a way that seemed unplanned or unwise. Land trusts are the response to that. Land trusts help landowners determine the fate of land that means a lot to them. So either family farms or inherited land, um, people who want to protect their own land, reach out to land trusts and say, look, when this generation passes, I'm worried about what my children or grandchildren might do if they subdivide this. Land trusts provide tools for people to protect their own land. Then we also reach out and work with state and federal agencies to help those agencies meet their land protection goals. So we buy land for Pisgah National Forest, for example. We help the National Park Service protect the viewshed along the Blue Ridge Parkway. We work with municipalities on protecting their drinking water supply by using conservation easements on municipal watersheds. So I get to meet with landowners. I get to meet with people um, in state and federal agencies, talk about their priorities. And then I try to identify funds that will match um, with those projects 
And a lot of what I do is hand projects over to the staff at Southern Appalachian Highlands Conservancy. We've got 13 people that do land protection and communication and help raise funds so that we can continue to work. And then the stewardship staff. So I work with all those elements of, of our land trust. So you're kind of like a broker to taking private land and whereas let's say like the national forest service or a game lands operation, they have their mission statement, what they're doing for daily on the daily. And you are, you see pieces of land that would fit into their organization and you facilitate that actually happening, uh, like growing those public lands. Is that right? That's a good description. We, um, we have our own strategic imperatives and those strategic imperatives almost always match up really closely with a state or federal or a county agency um, who has a similar goal. And we sit down and we say, hey, what are your priorities? Um, and if they show us their list of priorities and we say, well, this one um, you might not have known, but we had a biologist out on this property and they discovered this rare plant. It may also be on the adjoining property. Um, do you think that increases its priority? under your model. Mm -hmm. So we work a lot on um, trying to take scarce resources and direct them into the projects that have the most conservation bang for the buck. And um, so there's a lot of strategy that goes into that. And then you have to work with landowners to see if they are interested in either selling that land for protection or using conservation easement to protect that land. But it's all about matching up priorities of all the good folks out in the field who are trying to um, trying to protect the places that are going to clean our drinking water and provide meaningful wildlife corridors and meaningful recreation trails for um, guys like you and me. How'd you get into this? <laughs> well, my parents um, dragged the three children in my family out of our um, cozy lifestyle in Chapel Hill, um, where my father and mother both worked for the university and bought nine acres um, very close to Roan Mountain up in Avery County. And we dismantled some old cabins in Durham County and hauled the wood up to Avery County and built a cabin. And basically this is where I spent the summers of my life and then moved here full time after law school. Um, I was trying to learn to, uh, I was trying to find my fictional voice. I wanted to be a writer. And uh, so we had this cabin sitting empty and I came and brushed out the cobwebs and vacuumed up a lot of mouse droppings and sat down at a typewriter and, um, fell in love all over again with this landscape and but realized pretty quickly that it was being converted rapidly um, i was seeing a lot more electric lights at night off in the distance and i was hearing bulldozers um, up on ridges uh, that were putting in roads for subdivisions and just seeing the changing landscape pulled me into conservation when was that when, when what year ballpark was all that in the early 90s the early 90s I, I had finished law school i had a job that took me to boston chicago and london and every minute of um, the time doing that job i dreamed about getting back to avery county where i'd spent a lot of my childhood and um, when i got here and i saw that things had changed while i was away i got worried about that 
And that's how a lot of conservationists are born. <laughs> we get worried about change and we start to wonder, is the water going to be as clean at Elk Falls as it was when I was a kid? And if you're seeing impairment to that water, you start looking upstream and you start to imagine or you start to ask questions. You start to wonder, how is sediment getting into the Elk River? Where is that problem starting? And once you start going upstream on any of these um, sort of curiosity endeavors, you realize that the answer to a lot of these problems is conservation, protecting forest cover and protecting stream banks. And who does that? Conservationists do, um, federal and state agencies do, and land trusts do. So that's that's why I, I chose conservation for my career. Hmm. You know, I see two catalysts as um, propelling people into conservation. One is, like you say, going to an area repeatedly and seeing its change over time and realizing it's not a positive change. And number two is having kids because when you have kids, or at least when I had kids, all of a sudden the timeline down the future got expanded like another 40 years. You know, you, you, you kind of yeah. quit thinking about the end of your timeline and you're like, whoa, 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 what's going to happen during their timeline? So, yep. Let me tell you a quick story. I um, was camping with two of my nephews. And uh, we had been on a six-day camping trip, romping across the landscape. And our last night, we were camping in Pisgah National Forest um, in the Pisgah Ranger District. And I was whooped after five or six days on the road with these kids who were probably 10 and 8 at the time. And I was ready to cook that last dinner at the campfire and fall into the tent at 9.15. And they said, no, we have to have one more adventure. So we hiked up Looking Glass Rock in the dark, and we are sitting on Looking Glass Rock, taking in the splendor of the evening sky. Um, this is in the summer, beautiful late evening, and I was just, you know, it's very, I was romanced by the whole, by every aspect of this journey up Looking Glass Rock and breaking out onto the rock. And we sat down and we were being very quiet, and we heard one car somewhere on a gravel road, <laughs> probably back around, um, I don't know, Daniel Ridge or somewhere. Yeah, 225 heard, or whatever up in there, yeah. We heard one vehicle, and my nephew said, I can't believe we have to listen to that. <laughs> and I thought about how sensitive we are as creatures, and I thought about the expectations that we have when we dive into the woods and we think we're in wilderness and reminders of the modern world. And that, in my adult framework, I was so happy with the serenity that we had found. But as you're saying, when you have kids and when you're around young people and they bring fresh eyes to a situation, I realized, boy, we have a lot of work to do to create the world um, that is most healthy for us as, as creatures. And I, I thought of my nephew at that moment as a sensitive creature who needed protection from the modern world. Huh. Most healthy. I have a I have a question that came up. It was actually on a link that I saw that you sh uh, shared on Facebook this morning about conservation and its health benefits. Well, I want to get to that here in a little bit. Um, yep. But the f how did lobbying become a part of all this? So <clears throat> I mentioned that I wanted to move back to Avery County to write. Um, I've always 
believed in the power of stories because stories were so powerful in my childhood. Um, I was the reader. I was the kid curled up in a chair. And when dinner was ready, I couldn't hear my mom calling to say, get to the table because I was engrossed in a story. And I wanted to be part of, of that storytelling tradition. And um, lobbying is telling stories. And uh, lobbyists, it can be a dirty word. Um, I hear all the time people saying, first thing we need to do if we're going to fix our politics is get rid of all the lobbyists. Well, my, my perspective has changed a lot over the years. What I realized is to have a voice, you have to be able to lobby and willing to lobby. And that can be lobbying your neighbor or lobbying your family around the dinner table, or it can be lobbying a member of Congress. Mm. And um, so as a storyteller, I found a lot of value in sitting down with legislators who might not have realized that they were conservationists too, and framing issues in a way that makes conservation bipartisan and universal. And I'm going to tell you that it works. Every legislator that you sit down with at the state level and the federal level has a origin story from their childhood about when they fell in love with either a tree in their backyard or a national forest, two hours from home, um, a fishing trip with an uncle or an aunt. And um, so that is, I came into lobbying because if you need money to complete projects, you got to go ask for it. And what I realized was the best way to do that is to make connections and lobbying is making connections. Um, now, pharmaceutical lobbyists um, might lobby for, for issues that they themselves feel ambivalent about. I have never felt ambivalent about the, the issues I lobby on. I lobby on the need for more public land to protect um, species. <laughs> including our species mm. and to protect clean drinking water and open space and, and clean air. I go into lobbying with a very clear heart. And um, so I, I kind of delight in the opportunity to tell people more about the good side of lobbying. The part of lobbying that um, sometimes gets a bad name is legislators obvious, um, sometimes rely on lobbyists to write legislation. And that is because um, legislators you know, you may have a um, state senator who has a background in the funeral home business, but doesn't know much about um, creating a new state park, writing authorizing language to craft a state park. Well, if you've been working in conservation for a long time, you might know a lot about writing authorizing language for creating a new state park. And if that legislator is on board and wants to authorize a new state park, their staff can probably use some help. So sometimes you get involved in um, providing language. Sometimes it's just pulling up an old bill and you're the one that can put your hands on it and put it in a link and send a PDF and then the staff is ready to go. Um, I don't think providing that that information or those templates um, makes you a bad person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, by no means. You know, I got to share a story with our listeners. Last year, um, through some folks that I know at the Outdoor Alliance, I was hooked up with you to go lobby on behalf of the Land and Water Conservation Fund, which we're going to get into pretty deep here later on in this uh, in this show. But I just want to kind of paint a picture of Jay that that I know. So I had no idea who you were. 
very, uh, you know, there was an email chain that went around, uh, did not know exactly what I was getting into, but I was certainly happy to jump in the cause and like you say, felt like I had a story to tell. So we all meet up in the room. We're up in DC. We're waiting to figure out what's going on, where we're going to go. And it's essentially like, I don't know, 10 minutes. It was not very long to where we were getting ready to go have our meetings with staffers. The staffers are a whole nother story. I learned that, you know, a bunch of 25 year old staffers are actually running the country, which I find (laughs) interesting. Um, But anyway, we're at this table and, uh, you know, we're really close to getting ready. Everybody explained, got everybody on the same page about LWCF, uh, the problems with what had happened and lapses in funding and lapsings of allocation and whatever. And in the back of the room, there's you. And you've got an old pair of jeans on and a T-shirt. And, you know, we're all dressed up. We got ties on. We're ready to rock. And we kind of, you know, we we met, learned your name. You were super relaxed. We spoke for a minute. And literally, it's like five minutes before we're getting ready to go do this thing. And you're like, hey, I'm going to go change clothes. (laughs) Um, I'll be right back here in a minute. And literally, it was like you know, magic, you came back down, you know, looked presentable and it was just amazing watching you navigate the day. Um, I mean, you navigated, you you navigated the same way that like I would navigate a river. You know, I know where all the rocks are, all the holes, you know, whatever you knew every nook, office, building, corner, place in the cafeteria to meet with someone angles to actually get in with the staffers. Um, it just became super clear how effective you were in this process. But I guess the gist of my story is seeing you in the corner in your jeans and t-shirt, <laughs> you know, and so that's, I don't know. I just, you're talking about your authentic message and I just want to back you up that, you know, you're, you're, you're pretty dang authentic when it comes to lobbying for conservation. Well, thanks, John. I think, um, I think part of, um, being effective as as a lobbyist is realizing that the staffer that you're meeting with on the weekends, they're wearing jeans and t-shirt also, as are um, some of the members of Congress, maybe not all. Some of them may do yard work in coats and ties. They they sometimes seem that way. But, um, you know, I think that one of the reasons that we really wanted you to come to Washington was we all need to, um, to recognize that stories from home are what matter on Capitol Hill and lobbyists can can help in drafting legislation because they may be able to point to 1978 legislation that's analogous and that's really useful. But what really works well is making fresh connections on Capitol Hill. And I, I like making members of Congress uh, feel like they're surrounded even more than they may actually be by bringing in waves of fresh troops um, because because that authenticity really is effective, not in a cynical way, but, um, you know, people are working hard on Capitol Hill and they're meeting with all kinds of different teams of, of people. And there's nothing that communicates better than somebody who comes in and says, let me tell you a story about when I was paddling with my kid last weekend. That um, you can't you can't buy that. You can't pay for that. Um, that's why our story resonates because it's real and it's authentic and it comes from the heart and we don't ever want our story to get stale. 
and there are enough um, people out there that we can keep. If you can, if we can raise the money, we can um, keep paying for hotel rooms for advocates to come to Washington and tell their real stories. And so I'm, I'm really grateful that you came. You've got a unique story and I love your river analogy. It is very similar um, to knowing where the rocks are. And um, the first time you run a river, you're going to hit some of those rocks. Um, but you run it a few times and you can take your friends out and make them safe. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly how it was. And to add to that with your fresh, tr- uh, fresh, fresh uh, troops comment is that when the troops go home, they're invigorated to talk to their audience about the experience, which can hopefully get more messages in that staffer's inbox and that kind of thing. I, I think it's really, you know, I realized the first time, first couple of times I came home from Washington that um, when you tell your stories to your neighbors, because it's exciting. I mean, I'm a political junkie. I was thrilled the first time I stood in the shadow of the Capitol and, and walked some of those halls. You come back home and you tell some of those stories. And um, whether it's, you know, your goal or not, you end up having a little bit more authority at the local level to um, to be a broker for information, back to that idea of being a broker. And so everybody that comes to Washington with our coalition goes home and becomes an ambassador. And, um, you know, I, I have watched you operate um, after that trip to Washington and Kayla Carter, who was also on that trip, come back into our local communities and become more powerful storytellers. And, um, and I, I find that really, really exciting. It adds to the credibility of, of what we're all trying to accomplish on the ground back home. Yeah. And we're so close to the finish line on this thing. Yes, sir. I mean, well, before we get full on into LWCF, I want to touch on stand up that mountain. So stand up that mountain is a book that you wrote, um, that kind of explains, this con- uh, conservation process. Well, I'll let you. What, where, what is the story? Where does it begin? What's well, funny now, looking back, it all fits together very seamlessly. <laughs> How you start out with an advocacy challenge, and that leads you to becoming a lobbyist. Um, I was sitting basically right where I'm sitting right now, talking to you, sitting in my house on the eastern edge of the Rhone Highlands, and I started to hear trees fall on the other side of the Tow River Valley, and um, a lot of trees over a number of days. And so I did what you do in a small town. I asked my postmistress, Louise Buchanan, (laughs) I said, what's going on over on Bellevue Mountain? And she said, Jay, honey, that's Paul Brown's Rock Crusher. It's going to be the largest open pit mine in Western North Carolina, ain't it great? And my heart sank um, because I came to this place as a kid. Um, we felt like we were entering a wilderness. And um, I told you that it had changed some over the years. Notably, Sugar Top had been built off in the distance. Um, that was a big change in the landscape. And, and Sugar uh, Top, for those don't who don't know, is a huge white Gosh, a hotel. I mean, you can explain it. Condominium tower. Condominium tower. And it's, I mean, no offense, but the thing is obnoxious. So It's pretty obnoxious. It's an eyesore um, for people who are used to seeing mountains that have formed over the millennia (laughs) and have found their their current form and shape. And then somebody stuck a massive white carbuncle on top of one of them. Um, So I... um, 
I was sensitive to this new change coming in, which was not just going to be an eyesore. It was going to be very noisy. And I live right next to the Appalachian Trail. Now, the Appalachian Trail was not, when I was a kid, the Appalachian Trail was not where it is now. It used to go off the side of the, um, of the humps in the highlands of Rhone, and it traveled along 19E. But my land trust had bought Hump Mountain in 1981, so the Appalachian Trail could be relocated onto the ridgeline, which gives amazing views. But now the biggest feature in the view shed was going to be the Putnam Mine. So I was offended on many different levels, and I was annoyed that I had backup beepers waking me up every morning at 7 o'clock because um, I could hear the cement mixer start. That's how close I lived to it. Well, very quickly, I met a neighbor in the community who was offended as I was because the foundation on her house had cracked when they pulled the first shot of dynamite. Um, so we formed a little local group um, called the um, Concerned Citizens to Protect Bellevue Mountain, an unincorporated association of concerned citizens. And we formed a group and we brought a legal challenge and um, we went through the courts for four years. And uh, the, the woman that contacted me, I met her two days after the phone call and I was astonished to learn because she knew so much about the Mining Act of 1971 that she was a very articulate woman but she was also a 14-year-old girl. Oh, and wow. We formed this partnership um, with her aunt, who was raising her, and we traveled all the way through the North Carolina court system, and we won in the Supreme Court because the state had violated the Mining Act in 1971 by not considering the impact the operation would have on a national park unit. And the Appalachian Trail is a very skinny national park. So I learned in that case what it means to fight for what your values are. And I learned all the different pieces of um, getting to victory. And I decided that the best thing to do to protect the places that we love is to buy them. And that led me into the land trust world. Lawsuits are really expensive, really time consuming and have uncertain outcomes. With buying land, you have a better chance of controlling your outcome. So that's how I ended up in, um, in the job that I have. Oh, wow. So what is the Land and Water Conservation Fund for someone who's never heard of it? So the Land and Water Conservation Fund is a brilliant idea hatched in the early 1960s, mostly by senators who were flying in from around the country to Washington, D.C. and seeing the sprawl of the eastern seaboard. Um, it gave rise to a sense of alarm in the 1960s, the same things that I grew up feeling that wilderness was under pressure, that wildness was under pressure, that clean water was under pressure. And members of the Congress saw this pressure building on the Eastern seaboard and said, you know, if we don't get serious, we're going to lose our natural heritage in this country. So um, they looked for a funding source <laughs> to, um, to buy more land to finish the national forests in the east that are pocked with private land. Our forests have never been finished. The way you can buy a massive national forest in the 1920s out west um, or at the turn of the last century out west, eastern national forests are pieced together out of private land. So they sometimes look like Swiss cheese between public and private land and you have to buy every acre. So they wanted to create a funding mechanism so that we could finish some of our special units 
um, before we could even think about creating more public land, we had to finish the places that were already started. And Pisgah National Forest is a great example of that. The public only owns 55% of Pisgah National Forest, and the rest of it is in private hands. Really? I did not know that. Sometimes a piece of Pisgah National Forest proclamation boundary is on the real estate market. Sometimes it gets subdivided into a neighborhood. I live on private land in Pisgah National Forest. My nine acres, the Forest Service isn't interested in buying it because it wouldn't really add anything at this point. But when this land was subdivided um, back in the 1960s, that was a conservation opportunity lost. And I became very concerned seeing firsthand what that means for management of public lands. We've got to fill in these holes in our national forests for wildlife to have future corridors and for trails to work in the future and for hunting and fishing to work in the future on public land. So LWCF, Land and Water Conservation Fund, was created to address that problem and a brilliant funding mechanism was arrived at. Let's take a portion of offshore oil drilling revenue instead of taxpayer dollars and let's spend Let's trade that offshore oil and mineral wealth as we use it for permanent land conservation. So $900 million flows into this account every year, and groups like Southern Appalachian Highlands Conservancy and the Nature Conservancy and Mainstream um, you know, Land Conservancy and Foothills Conservancy can use those funds with their agency partners to fill in holes and fill in holes in Mount Mitchell State Park. Mount Mitchell State Park is not finished, and it was North Carolina's first state park. So Cherokee National Forest is not finished. So the problem is the funding mechanism has been broken since its inception, and congressional appropriators steal from this account every year, sometimes about half the balance. So last year, um, $900 million went into the account. Congress stole $405 million of it. So we have been working as a coalition, and the reason you came up to D.C. Um, with Kayla and, and many other advocates um, is to argue that we need that funding mechanism to be secure so that groups like Southern Appalachian Highlands Conservancy and the Conservation Fund can enter into real estate contracts with confidence, knowing that the Congress is going to um, help the agencies buy those properties from us when we act as a go-between. Right. You can't necessarily go to a landowner and be like, trust me, we're going to buy it probably. You know? Yeah. You just have to, if you'll wait for the Congress to appropriate the funds yeah. in maybe two, three or seven years, are you willing to wait that long? And landowners say, I think I might have to sell it to a developer first. Yep. Um, so that's the critical role land trusts fill is we can be more nimble. We can bring private dollars in um, from people who are who then qualify for tax breaks for charitable charitable contributions, we can reduce the cost to, say, Pisgah National Forest if we bring some private dollars in, and, um, and we can afford to hold the land for a short period of time, but not indefinitely. Um, you know, my land trust bought a piece of land recently, 100 acres in Natahala National Forest, and we borrowed $700,000 to do it. And there's interest on that loan and we can wait for the Forest Service to purchase it from us, but we can't wait eight years and we can't wait five years. Um, we can probably wait two and a half, three years. Um, and so we're now 
um, the effort that you've been a part of and, and so many great advocates in, in this region and across the country, really. Um, we now have a bill to fix that broken funding mechanism, and that bill passed the Senate, 73 to 24, and it passed the House of Representatives last week with 310 votes. So we are on the cusp of fixing that broken funding mechanism. Is it going to get signed? Well, um, I would not hazard a guess at predicting what the president of the United States will do. Um, any president, but maybe particularly this president, that might be uh, might be a bad bad guess on my part. But the president um, has tweeted positively about this legislation twice and has said it's important for his grandchildren and our grandchildren um, that we fix this problem and start funding um, land acquisition in our national um, public land units. And there's another part of the Land and Water Conservation Fund that funds local parks. So every greenway and baseball field and soccer field and local swimming pool and boat launch probably in our region, um, there's a very good chance that it's got funds from the Land and Water Conservation Fund in it as well. Every county in North Carolina, for example, has used Land and Water Conservation Fund for their local parks and greenways. Um, and then there's another part of this bill that's very beneficial that starts to address the maintenance backlog on public lands. A lot of people go camping for the first time in a national forest and there's litter um, around the dumpsters at the parking area and their potholes and two of the urinals are closed in the visitor center. There is a piece of the Great American Outdoors Act um, that will supercharge funding for addressing the maintenance backlog on public lands. So that's another piece of this bill that is really exciting uh, to me. Oh, we are so close to the finish line on this thing. Um, I've talked to this about several people since I've been involved, directly involved with it over the past year and a half or so. But what would you say, I've had this brought up to me, what would you say to the group that says that this somehow supports the oil industry or supports offshore oil drilling? It's a really good question. There are, um, you know, periodic calls for drilling moratoria. Um, right now, our economy does run on fossil fuels and carbon intensive ways of accessing energy. And this, um, this undeniable harm that is done by extraction this um, mechanism seeks to trade a permanent depletion of one asset with the permanent securing of another asset, which is water quality and, and public land for, for public use and enjoyment. Um, is that a perfect fit um, for the future? I wouldn't mind if my tax dollars went to fund this, to be honest. I think this is one of the critical functions of government. Um, but it has given it a unique bipartisan appeal that there is this link to extraction. And I think that um, extraction companies have been happy that there is a mechanism where they get to cleanse these dirty dollars in a way, if you want to think of it that way. Um, I think as a conservationist, I think the writing is on the wall for carbon intense energy produ production. I um, am very hopeful that we will turn away um, as soon as it's feasible from these carbon intense energy production um, activities and move to cleaner production of energy. Um, none of them are 
obviously a silver bullet that solves all of our climate problems. Um, the, the first thing we can do is conserve more energy in our homes and in our travel patterns. And uh, that's the first dollar we ought to spend, I believe, is, is on conservation and using less of things. Um, so I, I don't feel like it's, it's not a pure and perfect mechanism. It is a powerful offset for something that we do right now as humans. Um, that makes it a little bit more palatable. It doesn't really incentivize it. There's plenty of money um, left that, like the money that will go to the maintenance backlog, that's excess money over the $900 million that's generated out, out of offshore oil leases. And it's actually the leasing that um, generates the revenue, whether drilling is happening or not. Oil companies drill when it makes financial sense to drill, but they still have to lease the right to drill. Right. Um, so that that activity is ongoing until we have a better solution. Hmm. So this is all happening during a Republican administration. You wouldn't normally think of such a, a historic conservation bill um, being signed and happening and right up to the president's office. Have you ever read the book Freakonomics? I have. <laughs> yeah. You know, this just uh, politics has a lot of those same <laughs> characteristics of I, I, rather than get too deep into it, you just never know what's going to happen. You know, this is like a, a, a freak of politics story. You know, you yep. should put one of those together, Jay. I think that would be a good book for <laughs> yeah. you as a writer. But um, how did this happen during this the, during the last few years during this administration? Well, it's a great question. At the beginning of this, um, maybe not at the, at the absolute beginning of this journey, but back in 2009, a colleague and I, um, three colleagues and I actually took Senator Richard Burr fishing. And Richard Burr is a Republican, a North Carolina Republican, member of the Senate. And um, we had a great day talking about public lands, pointing out from um, a great overlook how much land we were looking at had been protected with the Land and Water Conservation Fund. And he said, well, what do you need me for? And uh, we said, well, frankly, Senator, we need more Republicans to support this legislation. And he said, well, how many Democrats do you have in support? And we said, every Democrat member of the United States Congress and he said, oh, well, how many Republicans do you have? And we said, one. <laughs> and he said, who's that? Well, it was Lamar Alexander of Tennessee. And Lamar Alexander had been very active in supporting um, a land acquisition in Cherokee National Forest called, Fork called Rocky Fork. And a project that my organization worked on with the Conservation Fund for seven years. And um, so Richard Burr then said, well, now you have two. And we asked him why he wanted to get involved. And he said, well, I'm offended by the fact that we say we're going to spend $900 million on this conservation. And then we don't, that we divert money out of this account every year, that appropriators steal some of it. He said, that offends me as a conservative. So he gave us a great new way to talk about conservation and with, with Republican members of Congress. And so we um, quickly, he said, let me go down the hall and talk to Lindsey Graham about this. So we met with Lindsey Graham's staff and he met with Lindsey Graham himself. And soon we had three Republican senators. When was all this going on? This was in 2009. Okay. And um, 
So then we were told we had a problem that, well, yeah, you've got a couple of Republicans um, now, but you, you just have Eastern Republicans or Southern Republicans. Um, this is not, you know, nobody in the West likes this program. Well, we very quickly found out that people in Montana really, really like this problem, uh, really like this program. <laughs> they have a problem with having a lot of public land, but not great access to a lot of public land. Mm. So if there are, you know, eight, 125 acre ranchettes between the paved road and the great elk hunting habitat, then you can't get to it across that private land. If somebody's willing to sell one of those, that's a classic LWCF project. It increases access to, um, for the public to get to hiking trails or fishing stream, trout streams or to hunting habitat. Um, so we found out that people in Montana actually love this program and they started talking to their senators in Montana and the Democratic senator, John Tester, loved the program. And Steve Daines, the Republican, came to love the program. It was a lobbying challenge. We had to tell stories to more members of Congress. And so the bill that passed, um, passed in June in the Senate, uh, 73 to 24 was bipartisan. You don't get to 73 in the Senate without it being bipartisan. Mitch McConnell voted for the legislation. Um, which surprises a lot of people. So I think that um, it's been a long effort, but telling those local stories is what built a lot of champions for the program. Um, we still, we've got work to do. Um, in the House, we did not get a majority of Republican House members, but we got enough to get to 310. So it's gratifying, but uh, everybody ought to be voting in favor of um more access to public land and fixing our public land units. So the work's not quite done um, even after this legislation is passed. We've got to continue building those networks so that what I want is in election campaigns for reporters to shout questions at candidates, what's your position on public land? What's your position on funding um, clean water? Where do you stand on um, hunting and fishing and kayaking and paddling and um, bird watching. And then I think we'll, we'll really have, have made a difference that's going to stick. Yeah, no, that's a, that's, that's well, I mean, it's hard to say, no, I don't want clean water. Like that's a very tough, you know. It's a great way to pose the question. Yeah. And, um, you know, the other thing that's happened that made this a magic moment is you had two vulnerable senators um, who are up for election this year in this cycle. And they happen to be members from Colorado and Montana who had become real champions for the program. And they went to the White House and told the president that, number one, this is a great program and it will do a lot of good in our states and across the country. And number two, by the way, it would be a really good election issue for us. <laughs> and I don't know whether the president fell in love with the program or fell in love with the electoral prospects of those two members, but election years can lead to a lot of legislation moving. So coalitions that are effective um, really try to tee things up for election years. <laughs> You're so brilliant the way you just said that. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a, a super political person, um, but I do, especially since being exposed to it firsthand, love this political process of 
all the wants and needs of everybody in their district and wanting to get elected in a way that you can squeeze something through that chaos, for lack of a better term. <laughs> it's fascinating to me. Well said. <laughs> um, as a conservation activist, being in this, what's been your lowest point? Uh, I think my lowest point is encountering um, some members who members of Congress who cannot be moved, um, who who don't hear the story, um, who and it can be a failure on the lobbyist part. Those members where you can't find the right language to explain to them. We had one member of North Carolina delegation. Um, this time, the House delegation who has co-sponsored this legislation in the past and then voted against it. And um, that is a disappointment to me. And I'll also just a, a more recent disappointment to me um, is during the COVID crisis, a lot of people are going to public land um, in in great numbers, um, which I'm excited about. I, I'm so grateful that people are turning to the great outdoors for their solace, but I'm seeing so many people use public land irresponsibly. Um, whether they are rock climbing without really knowing what they're doing, leading to the need for a rescue, which is a lot more dangerous um, during a pandemic, um, putting, putting first responders at risk, or people who are not packing it out when they go into the back country, but they're leaving their trash. Um, there's a there's a beautiful public land site near me in Pisgah National Forest, and there's a trail to a waterfall, and there's a there's a hollow stump. Tree was hit by lightning, and the Forest Service cut down the tree but left the hollow stump. And people are stuffing diapers and pizza boxes in that hollow stump. Well, there's no staff to show up and take that away. Um, and so the next users, the next people coming along are are encountering, a, really a gross scene. And during a pandemic, I usually pick up other people's trash when I'm in the back country or when I'm on public land. Um, if I can, I haul out other people's trash just because I can't bear it. But during a pandemic, touching other people's trash isn't all that appealing. Um, so I have to say those of us that fight for public land are pretty dismayed right now. Um, my hope is that the money in the part of the bill that is um, that has just passed for maintenance backlog work, that some of that money or some of the stimulus money can be used to hire ranger staff and to increase the pay of ranger staff so that we can have, we really abdicated a responsibility a long time ago in this country when we started slashing budgets that let our public lands decline. And I would love to see the occasional ranger um, or just custodial staff when I show up to public land sites and let people know when they visit that these places are cared enough about that we are going to put staff there, that we are going to have people um, checking on campsites, that you know people are setting up tent villages on public lands right now because you know they want to make sure that they get a site three weeks later and the tents sit empty for three weeks and then there's a rainstorm and the tent gets trashed and then the people who own it don't want to haul it out. That kind of stuff has got to end. It's uh, so anyway. Those are those are a couple of low points. Yeah, it just makes you know just can't have nice things. You know? Yep, yep, yep. 
I will say a silver lining in that is uh, there are a huge amount of people who are rediscovering the outdoors. And if those people, even if just even if just ten percent of them, twenty percent of them stick around after the pandemic's over, maybe that will increase our voice. Or maybe during this time somebody will become a hiker or become a biker or, you know, become vested and not just this is what we have to do because there's nothing else going on. You know, right now that's what we got going on. Well, there's nothing else to do, so let's do this. Yep. But maybe, agree more. but yeah. maybe if there's a percentage of those people who are like, man, this is really something that we should be doing instead of something else, we can increase our, our, our numbers for the important things, you know, more, more of those kind of evangelicals for the cause. Amen. Amen. There was a, there was an effort that just started here in Avery County just to clean up our roadsides because people have taken to tossing trash out the windows and um, many teams have formed and I met a lot of really nice people through the effort and we really cleaned up the roadsides in Avery County. And I love the friends groups that adopt um, areas of public lands. They do such good work. And, and I agree, um, you know, for everybody that's leaving their litter, you got other people who are just um, wide eyed at the wonders that they're experiencing sometimes for the first time. And those are, those are our people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the tribe. We have a, I own a piece of property down by the Green River and it's right at the trailhead at Green River Cove Trailhead and NC Wildlife did not shut down through all the pandemic. Well, you can imagine the amount of crowds and there were probably parked on our property 40, 50, 60 cars some days. And I had several neighbors um, kind of want me to not get those people you know, they kind of wanted me to shoo them out of there and my yep. my take on it was definitely i put no littering signs i had some choice words with some people i saw littering um but i think more people need to go outside you know i think i think it's healthy i don't think going outside is unhealthy and when you're in a pandemic with health is a big cause a bit a big thing that's important you know, we gotta get people. We gotta somehow. We gotta somehow be healthy. And that- well, I agree. And I think one of the things we've realized is that the people who live in neighborhoods that have spurs linking to greenways are having a healthier experience of the pandemic than people who have to take public transportation to get to a trailhead. Oh, no doubt. And we have got to do a better job locally and regionally and nationally of making sure that um, folks have opportunities to get outside safely without having to cross four lane highways. And, you know, think of the challenge that wildlife has in their breeding season, getting across I-40 or I-26. Well, that's the challenge we have built for a lot of people who right now need to walk out the door, get away from their family for a few minutes, as much as they may love them, um, but the annoying brother or sister or uncle or grandma, and take a walk. And we have got to do better providing linkages. And that is one of the things that the Land and Water Conservation Fund was designed to do, provide close to home recreation. And we now know more than ever that our mental and physical health depends on our ability to get outside safely. 
And so it's a real opportunity. It's a, uh, it's a hard way to learn the lesson, but now we know. We cannot claim that we do not know. And um, I'm excited about the next 20 years, next 25 years in America as we redesign our, um, our infrastructure to take advantage of living in this spacious, um, great land that we share um, the, there's so many opportunities to make it work better for, for everyone. I agree. And on the subject of health, you shared this article. It was in, um, conservation.org. The title of the article is three ways to prevent the next pandemic with nature. According to science, I'll put this in the show notes for everybody to, um, check out, but, Really what it is, is it touches on what we've just been talking about is just going outside is just so important in so many different ways. And, and start with not mistreating it. Um, (laughs) First, first do no harm. Um, The first part of that article is we've got to stop unplanned um, wanton destruction of forests globally. Um, deforestation is a huge problem as you interrupt habitats and natural cycles, you release things that are contained in forests. And in some parts of the world, that is viruses. <laughs> and um, there are natural systems that are able to handle those invasive infections. But once you breach the walls, um, it's kind of like an invasive insect, the hemlock woolly adelgid. You have it on the Pacific coast, but there's a predator beetle there that keeps it in check. You introduce it to the eastern forest, and it kills every hemlock tree it touches. Um, So we have got to – there are forests that humans don't don't belong in, and the natural systems and natural balance can take care of itself as long as we don't interrupt it. But as a species, we have proven that we really like to interrupt natural processes and – that that is step one in keeping us safe and healthy and it just feels like the right thing to do for a lot of us yeah i mean everybody can read the article for themselves but it talks about the accelerated rate of viruses making the jump from animals to humans how much more interaction there is with wildlife and humans um you know limiting the global wildlife trade and it's got some really good points in there i'll put it in the show notes but I felt like it was worth mentioning when we start talking about people being healthy and getting outside. Yep. Um, flipping the coin, what's been your crowning achievement? What's been the, what's been the, what's, what's been your highlight of your career doing this? Wow. There are, um, I have been so lucky that I get to buy land with other people's money. Um, and some of the accomplishments that have been most gratifying um, are, are ones that very few people know about. Carl Silverstein, the director of Southern Appalachian Highlands Conservancy, knows, and Michelle Pugliese, our land protection director, knows. My nephew knows because we love to go into the backcountry and and hike these places um, that we end up protecting. Um, so one of the accomplishments that I'm really excited about is um, – we bought 600 acres um, on Grassy Ridge, uh, land that comes down into Grassy Gap in the Highlands of Rhone. Six sisters owned it. It's land that I had looked at from a vantage point um, on Big Yellow Mountain my entire life. 
and wondered what was going to happen to it. And it was under contract to developers. Um, but we struck a really complicated deal as the clock was ticking in 2012. These sisters offered it to us for sale if we could close before the end of um, 2012. Well, they offered that on December 18th. So we had 12 days to close <laughs> on, a piece, on a piece of land that was appraised at $3.6 million. And um, I didn't do it. A team did it. Carl Silverstein did it. Um, you know, on Christmas Eve, we were working, um, raising the money and borrowing the money and scraping under the sofa cushions and buying that property, closing on 12 days. It would normally take 90 days to close on a, a tra transaction that complicated. But because of the goodwill our organization has with lenders and donors, we were able to patch that together. And that's now owned by the state of North Carolina. It's public land. And um, that there are many accomplishments like that, that not a, not a lot of people um, are aware of how difficult some of those are. But I like changing the map. And that's a project that changed the map. Oh, that is a great story. 12 days, 600 acres, three point, how many million dollars raised? 3.6 million dollars. <laughs> that's incredible. We started I'm, at zero. <laughs> I mean, I tried to buy a camper trailer the other day and it took me three weeks. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> what advice would you give to someone who has a local cause, whether they live in, you know, Texas or Minnesota or, you know, down in Georgia? What how, what advice would you give to them um, if they wanted to make some sort of conservation project happen? The first thing I would do, and it took me a while to learn this, is try not to duplicate somebody else's effort. There may be an organization that already exists that does what you want done. And that's what I found. Um, I did not know conservation organizations this, um, you know, doing this kind of work really existed. I knew what the Nature Conservancy was. And I had, as a child, met people through Southern Appalachian Highlands Conservancy. Didn't really know what that meant. Um, there are over 2,000 land trusts in the United States. And so almost every region of every state is served by a land trust that was started by somebody who saw destruction of habitat in their community and tried to think of a creative way to solve it. So I would say go to Land Trust Alliance, LTA, um, and find out if there's a land trust in your area that needs help or that is willing to help you. Um, you might end up stuffing envelopes for a while, or you might end up being a volunteer steward, um, you know, removing downed limbs on a trail for a little while. Um, and maybe that's, uh, maybe that's the goal. Maybe that's the, the, the thing you want to do to help. And, and we need that. Um, but so I would say, first of all, don't duplicate other people's work. Try to um, fit into the existing network of really accomplished, successful land trusts over the last 15 years, land trusts in the United States have saved more land, either using purchases or conservation easements, than was lost to sprawl. It is wow. an incredibly powerful movement that is taking place across the country. And you may find that um, there are good, hardworking people uh, that are ready and willing to help you when you notice a problem in your local community. But that's a good place to start. That's LandTrustAlliance.org? 
Land Trust Alliance. I think that's their website, .org. Okay. Um, if not, Google Land Trust Alliance. Okay. And they can link you to your local land trust. There's already a network network there. Just the ability to get on board is going to mean something. That's right. So if the president signs LWCF, which all signs point to, it's going to happen. Um, are you out of a job? What are you going to do next? <laughs> well, the great thing about conservation is you're never at a loss for um, things to do. Uh, if it weren't raining this morning, I would have been mowing at one of our preserves. Um, so uh, the grass is not going to stop growing. So, so I work at the federal level, also at the state level, and also um, purchasing land locally. So I am not at all concerned um, about running out of things to do. We already have to mount a defense even with passage of this bill, there was an amendment introduced in an appropriations bill last week that would have undermined the flow of dollars into the account, which had not happened in the past. Well, what, um, what, look, give me some details on that. What does that mean? Well, luckily, the authors of that amendment withdrew it before it was uh, before it hit the floor. But there are still some enemies of this program who think we have too much public land in this country and corporations um, and home developers should own all the land in America. So we will continue to have some noisy opponents. Um, the, and unfortunately, for a long time, the reason it took so long to accomplish this this um, win is because one of those opponents was the chair of the House Natural Resources Committee, <laughs> Rob Bishop from Utah, and he could control the agenda. There's no way um, well, with Republicans in the majority in the House that Rob Bishop was going to let this bill get through his committee. Um, so he, he remains an opponent. <laughs> he, he's leaving the Congress next year. So uh, we'll see who our next um, who's going to lead the opposition in the future. But there will be continuing attacks on um, the idea of creating a network of public lands in America, which is is um, troubling, but uh, it's uh, it will keep us all focused into the future. There's a lot of things I can understand being against, but public lands, it's just hard for me to figure that one out. I mean, it's such a no-brainer in my head, but... <laughs> well, you know, we've really had to work hard to explain to, say, the Chamber of Commerce that public land is a net win for communities economically. Communities that rode out the last recession well happen to be communities that had a lot of public land nearby mm -hmm. because people are using public land and that leads to dollars for nearby businesses. Obviously, the pandemic has changed the way a lot of businesses function. But we know um, when our economy gets back to a more normal footing, conservation is it saves money. Um, you know, the deferred cost of not having to build another water treatment plant because you protected the headwaters of a stream, that's massive amount of saved money for localities. The amount of money generated by an outdoor recreation economy is twice the size of the pharmaceuticals industry. You never see it in the Wall Street Journal. It's not on the front page. Outdoor recreation is a massive, healthy, green, homegrown industry. The jobs cannot be outsourced, but we need to organize ourselves better and tell that story better so that politicians have to listen to us. They're listening, listening a lot to pharmaceutical lobbyists, and conservation has a, you know, maybe 
7% the number of lobbyists that the pharmaceutical industry employs, and their industry is much smaller than the outdoor recreation industry. So we need to right-size our effort and, um, and figure out how to make our, our voice heard more effectively. And then you've got the Chamber of Commerce on your side, as we did on this bill, um, and, and a lot of um, politicians who, you know, Paul Ryan, who used to be the Speaker of the House, ran every week at home in Wisconsin on a trail that was protected with the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Um, you got to be able to make those connections for people to their own lives. And, um, and you got you to be in the field telling stories. That's, that's why the, my job doesn't end, um, because there will be a new generation of people that need to be educated and reminded of how important public land is, whether they know it or not. Huh, that's so true. What do you think the exodus, I mean, there's with the pandemic and we're already seeing it and I don't think this trend is going to go away for any, anytime soon, but people who live in the city are not only moving out of the city, but they're buying second homes that are closer to nature, more spaced out, just the concept of um, wanting to get near wild spaces. On one hand, it's going to make them more valuable. It's going to make these public lands more valuable. But on the other hand, it's going to kind of put another layer of pressure on it. How, have you thought about that? Do you see any way that that balances itself out? I was just on the phone um, learning about a piece of land um, that uh, was on the market three or four years ago for $20,000 an acre. It's now under contract for $40,000 an acre in Mitchell County. Um, and, or that one, it's actually in Yancey County um, outside of Burnsville. Um, and that gives us real pause. We are, it's conservationists. I think we're all very concerned about what happens um, to the economics of land acquisition when, um, when the demand for 15 acre, 30 acre, 100 acre parcels in rural counties goes up. Um, I don't know if that will be followed up by more building. I, I assume that it will, which can have impacts on water quality. We got to start with our existing public lands networks and try to fix it. A lot of the a lot of the purchases or a lot of the land that will be offered for sale, as I say, will be inside the proclamation boundary of Natahela National Forest, inside the proclamation boundary of Pisgah National Forest, because the public currently owns less than 60% of both of those forest units. So that's where um, we have to um, plant our flag and say, we got to protect the ability of these forests to function as ecologic holes. And then I think we all have to be involved in that earlier conversation about rethinking towns and cities. And there wouldn't be as much demand for rural land if more people in suburbs had access to trails and greenways and, and local parks. Yeah, so true. So I think we've got to, um, you know, I can imagine feeling somewhat trapped if I didn't have access to a trailhead and looking for an alternative. Um, I think we've got to get really creative and work really hard on providing these outdoor experiences um, in in suburbs and exurbs if we want to protect um, really important public lands that are now um, fairly fairly free lightly lightly populated hmm. this is going to be so interesting I mean the pandemic has shown we have so much weakness in the economy so much weakness in the healthcare system 
and there's just basic weaknesses sort of in the way of life, you know, like the systems are really getting tested. Um, yep. It's, it's a, uh, it's a stress test. It is a stress and, test. And we are, unfortunately it's real <laughs> and, um, it's not a, it's not a test. It's actually happening and, um, it is eye opening and it really is. It does, you know, when we talked earlier about health and deforestation and, it really brings together a lot of these concepts um, in, into one clear storyline that the outdoors matters, that access to the outdoors is critical, um, not just for our mental health, but for our physical well-being and for the well-being of those natural systems um, so that they can feed us. Um, we cannot squander the systems that have... Um, have provided this fragile planet with this this thin line of of humanity, and right now everything seems a little wobbly, and it starts with how we treat the natural world, how how bats were treated um, in China, perhaps, and pangolins. Um, we got a lot of soul searching to do. I'm going to wrap up this interview with that. I don't think I could say say it any better than that. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I'm excited, um, John, that you are out there telling stories and um, programs like this can serve a really important function. Um, I'm grateful to somebody that gets interviewed um, on a pretty regular basis to have this much time to explore uh, these ideas in a little more depth. So I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you coming on, and and real quick before we drop you off here, where can our listeners follow you or learn more about you? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I think if you just Google my name, um, Jay Lutzi, it brings up a link to Simon & Schuster, um, the publisher of my book, um, Stand Up That Mountain. They've got some information there um, that that links you. If you're, if you're trying to reach me, you can reach me through the publisher or you can reach me um, by contacting Southern Appalachian Highlands Conservancy in Asheville, North Carolina. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the Hammer Factor, Jay, and I hope our paths cross soon. Thanks, John. Take care.